Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to Owning It, the anxiety podcast with me, Caroline Foran. We are nearing the end now of season two, and I have saved one of the absolute best and most informative conversations for this precise point. In this episode, I am joined by behavioral neuroscientist, Dr. Michael Kane, who is the founder of Actualize Clinic in Dublin, who explains the brain, our evolution, why we feel the way that we do and react in the ways that we do in ways I've never gotten as much clarity on before. When you think of a neuroscientist, you probably don't imagine someone quite as approachable and down to earth and someone who explains things in such an unbelievably snackable way as Michael does. I just so wish he is someone I would have met years ago. Um, And I know that if you're struggling right now, you will find this episode so helpful. It's a little longer than usual, um, but there's just a lot to absorb and nothing I wanted to cut out because it's all so valuable. And I promise you, you will not find a better understanding of your brain and your anxiety anywhere else. Well, apart from my book, Owning It, which is almost entirely confirmed by everything Dr. Kane says here. So that's very reassuring for me as a non scientist person talking about anxiety so enjoy it and i will be back next week with a shorter solo episode where i talk about anxiety and something i get asked a lot about but have not been able to comment on before now pregnancy as i am i'm currently pregnant and i announced it on my social media and if you're one of the people to like or comment and thank you so much for your well wishes and thank you as always for the reviews and the subscribes thank you for the support over on patreon.com forward slash caroline foreign where your few your few dollars tips per month help me to keep the series going so enough from me and enjoy i'm so excited to talk to you today i've been trying to pin you down for so long but you're you're so (laughs) so busy and you've got so much going on yeah in your clinic actualize actualize yes got that right to start with can you just tell me a little bit about what you do and your background yeah um so i started out in the 90s uh, studied psychology so I was intrigued by uh, why people do what they do and actually started when I read 
the Lord of the Flies. So an awful lot of people going through secondary school would have read the Lord of the Flies. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a classic piece of literature. And uh, I spoke to my English teacher after that and he mentioned psychology and, and I went and studied psychology then in Galway. And Was that like a four-year degree? Uh, it's a three-year degree in Galway. And um, then I went on to do a PhD and I was more interested in the mechanisms, particularly the brain mechanisms behind um, people's decision-making and uh, becoming more aware, I suppose, you know, you get into your early 20s, that a lot of behavior is driven by things that we don't control. Yeah. And the disconnect between knowing and doing. So why do people, why does information not translate into action? So why do people smoke? I smoked at the time. So even though I knew it was really bad for my health, why was I still doing it? Um, and you become increasingly aware of the fact that an awful lot of our, our behavior is driven by non-conscious forces, as it were. And uh, before neuroscience became a discipline, uh, people attributed behaviors to all sorts of different mechanisms religious and otherwise and spiritual and the mind was really the domain of the priest and the okay. spiritual and whatnot we have Descartes to thank for that when he, he introduced that concept of dualism that basically from the neck down was the physician and from the neck up was the priest and that fitted a particular paradigm at the time so I became more interested in in mechanistic views on behavior and, and understanding that there had to be some reasoning at least to why humans do what they do mm. and feel how they feel uh, so so i did a phd in galway then um, in neuroscience in, in in through the psychology department but okay. in in neuroscience topics and in particular was interested in eeg or electroencephalography or basically putting electrodes on your head to understand what your brain is doing mm-hmm. And to build up some picture of that. And that started in 2001. And I mean, that's 19 years ago now. And in that 19 years, the technology has advanced so much yeah. in terms of what we can do and what you, the kinds of images you can render from EEG. So with, with neuroscience, would I be correct in saying you're taking the guesswork out of understanding why we do what we do, the way we feel and what we do in the brain, because you can see what's happening? Yeah, that's a, that's a nice way of describing it, I think. Um, the brain has up to this point been a sort of a black box yeah. and, and there's been a lot of guesswork. I mean, you can credit people like Freud at the beginning of the 20th century. He tried to put some sort of structure on what was happening with the ego and the superego and psychodynamic theory and psychoanalysis. I mean, of course, there was a context to that, but in the 20th century, there was increasingly greater efforts to bring some sort of scientific discipline to the mind. Um, and that went through a number of different revisions through the course of the 20th century. You had the cognitive revolution, you had behaviorism. And a lot of it was about trying to put some rules on our, our study of, of the mind. And, and neuroscience is just an extension of that. And, and all that's happening now is the technology is allowing us to see things that we wouldn't have seen before. When do you think the shift happened where the brain was no longer the domain of, of the priest and we started to turn to people like yourselves and the science? Well, I mean, uh, you could look back at the 60s, for example, um, and when you had people like B.F. Skinner, who, after the cognitive revolution, think post-World War II, uh, there were a huge amount of questions for humanity about how people could do 
what they did. And you had the Milgram studies about authority and you had, you had Stanford prison experiments and all that, uh, which haven't been replicated, actually. That, that was where they, they randomly selected a group of people. Um, uh, sorry, they randomly allocated people to be either a prisoner or a guard in an experiment. Oh, yes, yes, and, yes. And, and people started to fulfill the, the, the roles, as it were, and the, the experiment was cancelled. But that hasn't been replicated, contrary to popular belief. Um, that, that hasn't stood the test of time. But post-World War II, there are a huge amount of questions for humanity, as it were. And you had um, famous experiments about authority. And then you had a lot of questions about motivation and all that kind of thing. And then Skinner came along and said, look, we can't study motivation scientifically. So he developed that whole field of behaviorism, which was all about observation, stimulus and response. You know, right. the, the rat in the box. Yeah. Um, the rat presses the lever. And you can, you can count that. And it doesn't matter what the motivation is. What matters is what's the stimulus and what's the response. So the extension of Pavlov's dog. Really. Yeah. And, and, and that was a real turning point because he, I won't say dismissed the idea, but said we can only really study things that are observable. And you can't speculate. No, and, and there isn't really a space in science for the speculation. Because otherwise, you're not going to be taken seriously as a scientific discipline. And neuroscience is an extension of that because it says, right, we, we can use these tools now to measure what our brains are doing. And, and psychology then puts the framework around that by linking what your brain is doing to the, the, either the observable behavior or the internal phenomena that you report as anxiety or, or the, the changes in behavior that we assume are related to a particular internal state. So... I avoid going out uh, to meet friends because I'm anxious and the anxiety is driven from this particular brain pattern. And then psychology also gives you the, the steps behind that, which are the precipitating factors, the genetic factors. So what are the kind of things that might have led you towards anxiety? What are the maintenance factors? What are the kind of things that are keeping you there? But neuroscience just provides the mechanisms. Uh, okay. So I've always been interested in, in neuroscience as an explanatory phenomenon. So what it can do to help explain, not things that we already know, but phenomena that are already established. So we know what anxiety is, we know what avoidance is, and we know what uh, negative reinforcement is. Neuroscience can give you the bedrock to understand that. And, and, and as you know, then once you begin to understand the mechanisms, you can take blame away or you can take yes. guilt away or you can introduce self-compassion. And you can, for me, what's interesting about neuroscience is that you could hone in on the individual. Whereas with psychology and, you know, reading about why we do the things we do, it's all very like umbrella term. And mm. it might be slightly different for every person depending on their brain. And we'll get into all of the different mm. things that make that personal. Um, but... So when I would have thought of a neuroscientist, I would have thought of you in a lab, <laughs> in probably a lab coat with, you know, dissecting brains and stuff. But you're here in a clinic with people, mm -hmm. like giving them therapy. Yeah. So what do you do? How, like what kind of people come into you? What are they looking for? And what do you do? Yeah, I mean, in, in the neuroscience umbrella um, extends all the way from preclinical sort of bench neuroscience all the way to behavioral neuroscience, which is what I do. So we... Uh, have a range of services that actualize but ultimately the the usp as it were the unique selling point is the is neurofeedback training so the, it's essentially using eeg 
and that is uh, that, that that's putting the electrodes on your head okay. to measure brain activity using that to measure what a person's brain is doing and then feed it back to them in a way that's meaningful and give them reinforcement when their brain is doing as it were what we wanted to do and no reinforcement when the brain is doing what we don't want them to do okay that's basically just the principles of operant conditioning or learning by reinforcement so we're reinforcing the correct type of brain activity the kinds of people who come to see us are generally the, the, the greatest body of evidence is for ADHD okay followed then by things like anxiety and depression and we're getting more and more people through who are understanding that they have a history of developmental trauma so there's been a, a real in, increase in interest in trauma trauma-informed care uh, developmental trauma and and if we divide our intervention as it were into two separate things one is just measurement which we did, for example, at the podcast, you and I. Mm -hmm. And the second is the intervention. And I often say if we stopped after the measurement, that would be 50% of the intervention. Because we can put the electrodes on your head, record what your brain is doing, compare it to a normative database and build a 3D functional model of your brain and show it to you and show you what your brain is doing. And for people who struggled with anxiety or depression or anything else that they struggle to understand, struggle to explain, feel embarrassed about or that's affecting them day to day there's a real validation in seeing it i often say you don't blame a kid for not being able to walk up the stairs if they have a broken ankle mm -hmm. but we expect somebody with a history of developmental trauma whose brain is in that fight or flight mode more often than than not to maintain a stable relationship or to have the same resilience as everybody else or to just be fine with everything um, and that's because we haven't understood it and we don't see them actually as illness mm -hmm. like you see diabetes. So you don't question when somebody with diabetes refuses dessert or injects themselves before the meal or after their meal or who's getting retinopathy because you've got microvascular disease which comes with diabetes. We don't question that mm -hmm. because we understand the mechanism of yeah. it. Yeah, and I think for me it's always been because it's tangible and it's something we can put our finger on or maybe we can see. Whereas with anything in the brain or in the mind, it's like we feel that we should be able to control it because we feel like, well, that is us. Like my brain is me. And if I can know that there's no reason to be anxious right now, why can't I just not be that way? Mm. Um, so for me a big learning has been understanding that you know it's equally as part of the body and functions and, and gets into patterns and rhythms mm -hmm. you know so so we did for people who don't know I, I would have posted about it on my social media um, Brezzy did a live podcast a few months ago and as part of it he asked me to come along and be a guinea pig and I didn't know what he didn't tell me anything first of all mm. <laughs> he just said come along and um, I didn't know what to expect but we did the EE G, G. Yeah. and that involved you putting what looked like some sort of rugby helmet on me, mm. loads of gloopy stuff onto my brain or onto my, my scalp to connect electrodes and then you were going to observe my brain and what it was doing and I think what the first thing that was interesting for me was that I would have thought like a like a lie detector test that you're just going to see well obviously I'm going to be a bit on edge now mm. But that's not the case, right? Mm -hmm. That's you're, true, yeah. So you're seeing not state, but... Trait. Trait. Right. Okay, I remember that. For me, it was... I think if it was a couple of years ago, I would have 
gotten that information and maybe panicked a little bit that oh god I'm this is the way I am I'm always going to be this way whereas now because I've become so much more understanding and accepting of working with myself rather than against myself to to see the results which we'll talk about actually gave me a bit of like okay well this is what you've been dealing with all your life and like been you know pushing a boulder up a hill it's not your fault it's not just that you can't not be anxious and we put ourselves under so much pressure I think because society prefers people who are chilled out and laid back and it's always described as a compliment like it's never a compliment to be like a bit Mm. highly strung or anything like that nobody wants that to be that way or to be described that way but there has to be room for people in the world who are that way and a lot of good things can come from being that way so can you explain in very basic terms what you saw from my brain Mm. and knowing that I was coming in under the um you knew that I was someone who has had suffered with anxiety mm. in the past and was managing it quite well at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you've hit on so many um, critical points about people's journey with anxiety and, and people's journey with their own brain. The first thing to say is one of the real gifts of, of EEG in particular is it demystifies this concept of I know I have nothing to be anxious about, so why am I anxious? And if, if I could just make a sort of a brief segue mm. into that for a second, because this is the this is the revelation for most people. And when I'm giving talks, so people who work in big corporations or the public service or wherever it is might be sick of having people coming into their workplace talking about wellness. Um, so, and I'm one of those people, uh, fortunately <laughs> or, or, or unfortunately. But I have a very simple message, and that is I just want to explain to you what's happening. So when you're stressed and anxious or under pressure or you react angrily or whatever it is and you feel embarrassed afterwards or whatever it is, we confuse conscious awareness or knowing with being able to change things. Mm-hmm. So when we measured your brain activity, for example, and we looked at the way your brain is operating, we, we were able to monitor and map brain areas that are non-conscious. So again, you know, people have all sorts of ideas about unconscious and the ego and all of that kind of thing. But we, we just call it either non-conscious or pre-conscious. And we say pre-conscious because if, when we're measuring your brain, if we present a stimulus like a little beep or you have pictures flashed up, it can take 100 or 150 milliseconds for your cortex, the top bit, the bit that gives us awareness to deal with that image or that sound to process that sound but before it processes that sound the subcortical areas the areas beneath the cortex take the information in and these are the areas into which your five senses dump their information so you cannot get information from your senses or your body actually up to your cortex first it has to go through pre-processing in non-conscious brain areas. Mm-hmm. So it goes in through the thalamus? In, in, some of them go through the thalamus, okay. some of them go through the brain stem. Uh, but, but ultimately, they end up with the cortex. So but, everything we are, every bit of information that comes at us, everything is first being processed by the more primitive brain and then being sent up to the more... That's right. More The, more, the later modern, evolutionary yeah. section. Okay. And, and the pre-processing is subject to your genetic history, of course, but it's also subject to your experience. So our non-conscious brain, and this is why humans are very good at, 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 at progressing as it were as a species, is we're very good at running templates, running algorithms. So if you've learned in the past to be afraid, or if you have learned or your experience has shown you that 
world is not a safe place. And that's a complex process, of course. The pre-conscious or non-conscious brain areas play that template out. Or they run the algorithm and they, they always have a better safe than sorry. Mm-hmm. So information is coming in and it's being tagged all the time. And if something is particularly anxiety invoking and that's subjective. Yeah. Your that pre-conscious brain area doesn't have to send it upstairs. It doesn't have to send it to the executive control and the cortex. It can activate your okay, body. So it's like we know what is important here. Yeah. Get into fight or flight mode. Don't even need to bother waking up the prefrontal cortex yeah. because it's not necessary. And it's too late. Yeah. This is an emergency. Yeah. And it's going to take me 150 milliseconds to get this fella upstairs awake. We need to act now. We need to prepare for that bear in the bushes, as it were. We need to prepare for the snake or whatever. Of course, that's a process of evolution. But that happens in the single digit milliseconds. Mm. So that's less than 10 milliseconds to activate the muscles in your neck, for example. Now, if you just look at that as a timeline, look at the anxiety response starting maybe 10 times earlier than than your conscious brain. You can understand then why knowing doesn't necessarily change the doing. Yeah, because by the time you know, it's too late. That's right. And then, of course, your prefrontal cortex and your cortex in general will be notified, as it were, of what's happening. But at that stage, your body's activated. Yeah. And now you've got a loop because your cortex and your, your, your non-conscious limbic system is also taking information back from your body through the vagus nerve. Which confirms that you're anxious. Exactly. It's saying, look, my heart's racing. There's shallow breathing going on. Your, I mean, your vagus nerve innervates most of your major organs. I mean, it sounds like a very fun nerve, but it's not. Nothing to do with Las Vegas. Not, nothing to do with Las Vegas, unfortunately, <laughs> you know. But it does bring a lot of information back. And we tend to think of nerves from your brain going down. Yeah. But 80% of the fibers are back up. So right. it's actually, it's taking information back. You know, they say, what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I mean, <laughs> what happens in your body comes back through the vagus nerve to your brain. Okay. And it reports back. And it reports, we're anxious downstairs. You should probably be anxious just to be safe. And, and also the vagus nerve has branches which goes to your trachea, your airways and to your vocal cords. So your voice changes even when, when you get anxious. Yeah. And that's, right. a, and that's a social signal to other people. So if you've ever been in that instance at work or at a party or wherever it is where somebody's making a speech or doing a presentation and their voice starts to shake and you start to feel anxious for them, mm. that's a social cue that's driven by the vagus nerve. Because it changes the way your vocal cords and vibrate. What's, what's its, what is its goal in that scenario? Is it to make? Well, I, I'm anxious, so you should be anxious. Okay, cause because we're, we're potentially all under threat. Yeah, we're, we're we're a group here, and okay. uh, I, I've seen some things, so we all need to be anxious, and it activates everybody okay. to prepare for that bear that's coming. Right, and, oh, that's, and that's evolutionary. Yeah. yeah, and it's like yawning. You know, I mean, it, it, it's yeah. a social cue. But once you understand that timing, you can begin then to give yourself a bit of a break yeah. and say, okay, this anxiety response I'm having. Is, is driven by primitive evolutionary from an evolutionary perspective parts of the brain and now it's trying to drive a behavior but the threats we're facing as everybody knows now are, are more subtle and and this response is isn't really very useful yeah so once you can understand that particularly when we're talking about your brain activity and and and, and in particular your description of of working with yourself rather than against yourself trying to stop that from happening yeah 
it's it is literally trying to change something in the past because it's it's 50 or 100 milliseconds mm. ago mm-hmm. So you have you accept that we're stuck with this. This is why I can't eat chocolate bars all day, because we have such a highly developed gastrointestinal system designed to to squeeze every tiny last calorie. I mean, if you if you look at the gastrointestinal tract of a shark, for example, it's fairly linear, so it's got to get a lot of food in and a lot of waste goes out. Mm-hmm. Whereas we are exceptionally good. We have a very convoluted gut, mm-hmm. which forces food through to squeeze out all the last calories. So I understand that I have an evolutionarily old gut for this new world we're in. So I have to tailor Adapt. my diet. Yeah. Similarly, we have an evolutionary old brain for a new world. So we have to adapt how we respond to that world. Mm. And th- that starts by understanding that the world is now designed, and I use the word design very deliberately, to create fear to create a little bit of panic, to create unease, because of course it's easy to sell people solutions then. Mm-hmm. And once you understand that, and you understand that the primitive brain, the limbic system is creating this fear response subtly and non-consciously and over a long period of time, you can then feel discomfort in a very different way. Yeah. You can say, okay, th- this is uncomfortable. And this, this emotion I'm feeling, the, the, the secrets in the word emotion, it's trying to get you to do something. You can say, ah, this now is where I can jump in. My, my neocortex, this is where my knowing can jump in and say, I'm feeling this way. I can't stop that. That's okay. I can accept it. I can ex- and that's acceptance. Now I can cut the cord between the emotion and the behavior. Yeah. And that's where your psychological therapies comes in. That's where mindfulness comes in. All of these other things come in. But it's, it's, it's that Buddhism concept of it's, the second arrow that does the damage. And I, I take this directly yes. from him. How you respond to the behavior. Exactly. Yeah. It's the struggling with the pain that's getting you. I'm a big believer in, under, in, 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 in helping people understand the mechanism. Because once you accept that anxiety or stress, you know, the stress response, they're, I don't want to say normal parts of our everyday living, but they're... They're unavoidable. They are. And they're, they're a hangover from our evolution. And they're very, very protective, by the way. This is the thing that, that, that stops you walking out in front of a bus. Yeah. You know? So it's very, very useful. But once you understand it, you can then look at it in some objective way, in as far as humans can. Mm-hmm. And the big thing then is disconnecting the, yeah. the, the, the stimulus and the response. I think that's like the clincher for me in how I got to a point of owning it, which is the phrase that I've used and where so many people find a bit of they like something kind of shifts for them mentally when they realize that for so long like people who message me all all the time are trying not to feel anxious are trying not to have that reaction in the first place and just trying to be have a completely different brain and it's not going to happen and like the more you try not to be anxious in my experience the more like friction you create so for me it was about i'm going to react anxiously to things that's okay but how i respond to that that's where i have autonomy and that's where that's where I can actually make a difference to my experience Mm -hmm. and I think people need to realize that what you say there is it's that space in between stimulus Stimulus and response response, that that's where people have power and they don't feel like they have any power because and especially if they were listening to the conversation thus far it would sound like we're all fucked like it just happens you know but actually we're not so it's going to happen you're you can't outsmart the primitive brain you can't hack it, but you can observe it and choose how to mm. respond to it. So what, what, what did my brain show you? 
Well, I mean, when we looked at that, we, we looked at the non-conscious, the conscious areas, and you can see those non-conscious brain areas, the limbic system, the cingulate gyrus, the amygdala, the hippocampus, quite active. Very, very, very active. Hyper, you said hypervigilant mind. Yeah, cer- certainly hypervigilant. So the information is coming in and it's all being tagged as potentially fearful. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I often think about it like an A&E. You present A&E and very quickly you'll, you'll see a triage nurse who will decide whether you're having a heart attack or you have a broken finger. And if you have a broken finger, of course, you go back to the end of the queue. But if you have, you're having a heart attack, that triage nurse has access to all areas can shut everything else down, get person into whatever imaging speciality they need or whatever intervention they need. And in your brain, information is coming in and that triage nurse is oversensitive. It's a broken finger and panicking. You're saying, hang on a second, this is just a broken finger. You know, they're yeah. not going to die from that. But that, we can only speculate as to, you know, what, what, where that comes from. Uh, what the experiences are that might have led to that, what the genetic predisposition okay. is, environmental factors, etc., and, and and every combination of all those things. So when you're looking at the brain, you're just looking at the biological yep. brain on its own. That's right. We're not looking at anything else, which we'll get to in a minute. But with, without any knowledge really of how what interventions I've taken or how I behave or what how I've managed my anxiety, you could see that I was dealing with a very and always have been probably dealing with a very. Yeah overactive slightly um i kind of describe it like an overbearing parent yeah sometimes or like i like the idea of the, the triage nurse who's just like everyone's gonna yeah. die yeah that's exactly um, it yeah. and that's not what you need no because that screws the whole system up you need in in that emergency or the potential where an emergency can walk in the door at any time you need somebody who's calm yeah and who can make good decisions so then the job of the prefrontal cortex or the neocortex is to take that basically the doctor who says calm down here we're actually okay to mediate the fear response mm-hmm. um but what you found with my brain is that actually my doctor was probably a little bit drunk a little yeah, bit slow uh, uh, oh, <laughs> actually the, the, that regulatory capacity then that you get from the prefrontal cortex uh, is slightly down regulated but that's that's probably a consequence i'm speculating here to some degree but it's probably a consequence of, of, of chronic anxiety. Because chronic activation of the, of the limbic system... Um, Wears down. It, it actually yeah. strengthens the connection to the prefrontal cortex, oh. but not in a way you would, you would like. And it, it increases its capacity to downregulate the regulator. So the more anxious this triage nurse is getting, the more he or she is able to downregulate the responses of the people in the know. And say, no, 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 we're not listening to that. No, no, sorry. No, no, this is going straight to surgery, straight to surgery, straight to surgery. And the more that the triage nurse does that, the greater that nurse's power is to take over the whole system. Okay. Now, the reason I say that is that this first became clear when we were studying post-traumatic stress. That strength and connection between the limbic system out to the front, to the big regulator. Mindfulness does the exact same thing, but it works in exactly the opposite fashion. It strengthens the connection between the limbic system and the frontal parts of the brain, but it allows the frontal cortex more capacity to regulate the limbic system. More capacity for the administrator behind the glass screen at the door or the nurse inside or the doctor or the radiologist, whoever it is, to say, hey, it's okay, everything's fine. You see these people who keep coming in with the broken bones? They can wait. Everything's okay. And that increases that regulation and that feedback mechanism to that triage nurse. 
who can eventually then begin to learn that's okay we can disconnect mm-hmm. the fear I'm feeling I'm an anxious nurse but I can disconnect that from the response I make so ultimately when we look at your brain you have that sort of double whammy of elevated activation in the limbic system and the regulator being taken offline right so then you end up in this cycle because that's I mean that's protective right yeah I mean that's what your brain is designed for it's yeah designed that's its primary goal is yeah. survival not happiness but and this is where this is where knowing then can work our biggest problem then and, and we saw this with your brain then when we went up into the fast wave activity and beta activity and whatnot and that's opened the neocortex yeah your your, your neocortex then and I, and I know this sounds like a contradiction was also quite overactive so that's your overthinking that's the conscious rumination you know about the past worry about the future that constant sort of you know the, ped, the, the pedaling 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 it's you know think of the duck on the water you know yeah. everything looks calm on the top and the feet are flying underneath um and that's that's our conscious that's the worry that we're aware of and of course that complex cortex that has developed over time has developed this amazing capacity that other animals that we, we think at least other animals maybe higher primates have some element of it our capacity to think abstractly and think ahead and imagine what ifs mm-hmm. so what if i didn't spend my money now and saved it i'd be able to buy something better later this is a you know this is a never a thought that i have <laughs> yeah, but, but you know i mean we, 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 you have the brain capacity for it you yeah. know what i mean and that, 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 that's why we can study, for example. And, you know, I, I could go out tonight or I could study and, you know, we accept that, you know, everyone has to study or whatever when they're, when they're doing their schooling and whatnot. Mm. But our greatest capacity, which is abstract thinking, inhibiting responses, all of those kind of things, are also our greatest weakness. It's the same with language. Language allows us to create scenarios that don't exist. So I can think ahead I think if I go to that party, I won't know anybody and I'll be embarrassed. I'll be really anxious because I have nobody to talk to and everybody else has so many friends. And you can create all that in that cortex. And language allows you to do that. And then what happens? The triage nurse picks that up Mm -hmm. because that limbic system is not differentiating between real and imaginary. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important for people to understand that your body and your brain respond to imagined events in the same way as it responds to real events. Yeah, and that would explain why I would have been able to have a panic attack sitting on my sofa, even though I was technically safe, because it was just all it took was a thought yeah. to go off like a bomb and make me feel... I, and the thought I remember was, oh my God, like what if I'm always like this and I'll never be the same again and I'll never be okay. And then that just... For me, the panic attacks were like a flood of... felt like burning flames going through my body. Mm. And I haven't really had a panic attack in a long time. I don't know whether that's just because I'm not afraid of it anymore. Mm-hmm. Or I sort of, I I got to a point where I was like, I realized that the panic attack didn't matter as much as how I responded to it afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that's where the damage for me lay was like, I'd have a panic attack and it would be like, you know, split seconds or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards I'd be like, oh my God, like, what is, this, what is this saying about you? Are you losing your mind? And how I would beat myself up over that. Mm-hmm. And that's where then you start to confirm things in your head, mm-hmm. is my understanding of mm-hmm. it, that allows you to stay in that cycle. Mm-hmm. Whereas I had to sort of get to the point where I was like, okay, 
you know, un- understanding the, the mechanics of what was happening and being mm-hmm. okay with that mm-hmm. and not thinking it's your fault, mm-hmm. you know, it was so important. But something that I, I, I thought was really interesting after we did the EEG was that you sort of were saying that you're looking at my brain in isolation. Mm-hmm. And even though you were seeing a very hypervigilant, hyperactive, anxious brain, mm-hmm. I was able to say to you that I feel like I'm managing it quite well because you're not seeing the whole picture, which is, so that's the bio, you're not seeing biopsychosocial, mm-hmm. which I think is a really good framework for understanding all of the different things that contribute to mm-hmm. our experience so so the bio like what is useful about seeing what you saw in my brain like what does that tell us and how is that useful for me hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I mean, if you can understand the genesis of how you're feeling, I mean, you, you have the physiological response from the neck down and, and from the neck up, as it were. But what, I, I'm a big believer in sort of empowering people with knowledge. Mm-hmm, that's, me too. That's, mm-hmm. if it's half the battle. It really is, because as you say, you think, Jesus, am I losing my mind here? Am I going crazy? Is this the way I'm always going to be? I have no control over this. That's where the, the, the move from the physiology to the psychology comes in. If you can understand what's physiologically happening, and that's very difficult. I mean, it, it's easy to understand it, but it's difficult to not let it grip you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, the, that, that's the, the value, actually, of the personal story. So why are, why are personal stories so pertinent in an area that, that could just be you know, quite heavily science-based? is that people understand the struggle, which is the gap between knowing and doing. So once you can at least understand what's happening, and you can relate then to stories of people saying, well, I bridged the gap 
from knowing to doing. And here's how I did it. And that, and that jump, that's, that's an intervention jump. And that's the bit that people are told, just do it. Just get over it. There's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. Sure, there's nothing to be worried about. Jesus, you've got the podcast going and you've got everyone the books and you've got <laughs> the, the family and whatever. It's irrelevant. Yeah. It's, uh, I remember a lecturer of ours talk, in microbiology talking about um, giving uh, an antibiotic for a viral infection. She used to say, you might as well write it on a post-it and stick it to the forehead. <laughs> it's the same with this. Yeah. Telling somebody, I mean, there there is certainly a part for um, you know reassurance. I mean, uh, and you, you use that uh, carefully. But the gap between knowing and doing is where the work happens. Mm-hmm. But at least if you know, okay, my heart's racing, but that's a product of the way my brain's responding to this innocuous event or this innocuous thought. Once you can break the link again it goes back to mindfulness you begin to gain some sort of control over it and people have all sorts of mechanisms for that and that's where psychological therapies come in and, and that's where practice comes in because it's a it's it's something you have to practice and that's where language becomes really important because language is a real big bearing on how we how our brain intervenes like self-talk do you mean yeah and self-compassion actually mm. and and um describing things and using language that is that separates you from the emotion mm. so this is, i mean this is really really fascinating stuff in that for people who are familiar with other languages people listening to this obviously speak english and in english we say i am anxious so your whole being is defined by the yeah. emotion and this might seem small and it might seem trite and it might seem sort of irrelevant but think about mass effects. Think about everybody saying this all the time. And everybody saying it to you and, you know, we don't even think about it. I am anxious. Whereas if you look like languages like Irish, you take an emotion and you say, this emotion is sitting on me. Mm. And it's separate to me as a person. And then, I mean, and this is cultural and it's, it's quite, it, it's, it's, it's nuanced maybe, but uh, it's certainly real. Then culturally, these kind of things can be shared. And, and you can, it can sit separately to you and you can look at it and you can sort of manipulate it and you can leave it somewhere. Mm. Uh, whereas if you become defined by, well, I'm an anxious person, then it becomes, language means that it's very difficult to disentangle you from the emotion. Yeah. And that then creates neural responses, of course. Yeah. And then the limbic system activates again. And that might seem, I know I keep saying this, but it might seem irrelevant. But you do that a thousand times a day or 20,000 times a day for 10 years, that's bedding down a lot of neural pathways mm-hmm. that are very sensitive to change. And you can just keep that running. And that's building a template, that's building an algorithm that keeps playing out over and over again. So if you think about entrenching that, disentangling yourself from it necessarily then is a journey as well. Yeah. And it's a journey of practice. The language is, it's so <clears throat> important and it's its something that people might think it's just, oh, well, it's not going to make a difference, but it does. Like, I get a lot of messages from people saying, oh, I also have GAD or generalized anxiety disorder. And I've never been told I have that. And I never, I don't consider myself, I don't say I am anxious, unless I'm anxious in the moment, mm. but I am a human being. And sometimes I feel heightened levels of anxiety and sometimes I don't. And that is all of the language that I need to put on myself. 
I think for me it helps me normalize it I think if you're right like if I keep reinforcing to myself oh I'm an anxious person I'm an anxious person I'm expecting myself to be anxious all the time and I just I don't it did define me when I didn't understand it and I was scared of it but now even though I'm doing this podcast and my books are kind of exploring it I'm anxiety is not me I'm like I'm always trying to get across to people that anxiety is something that every single person can feel and it's so normal mm-hmm. and um it's important as well and some of us maybe are just reacting to it more than others or have a high, more heightened sense of anxiety than other people are more vigilant than others but what do you think then about th- th- those that language around like putting labels on things like do you think actually I don't know why but I have a like I have this reluctance towards things that say you have like an anxiety condition or disorder but I don't have any scientific background so I probably I've no right to say that but do you think someone could have told me I had GAD and I would have been like okay well that's just the way I am now forever I won't even bother trying to kind of think another way is that helpful yeah I mean I think it is useful to understand a particular set of experiences as uh, in some sort of categorical way and I mean this is this is an extension of basically trying to bring the medical model to mental health so the, the whole concept of, of good history taking good examination good differential diagnosis for example in medicine is to arrive at a point of a definitive diagnosis. Because what happens when you get the diagnosis? Immediately you have a plan for treatment. Mm. So again, a person is experiencing a disparate set of symptoms. They, you know, they've got problems with their eyes, for example, and you can link that back to intracranial pressure, and the intracranial pressure is related to ABC, and then you can intervene. Mm-hmm. And that person is categorized, and you can think about, think about it like a decision-making tree. Yeah. And that's very, very straightforward. And, and most people will fit into that. And that works really well, the categorization of physical health uh, and the labeling of things as conditions and uh, as quite useful. But what's begun to happen is that's become a bit looser over time, particularly then when you start applying it to mental health. There was an, an, an almost an urgency about that. We have to categorize things because once you categorize, then we can intervene. Yeah. So you have ADHD. Now... The difference, of course, with mental health and physical health, I mean, it's not a perfect comparison, but certainly, broadly speaking, is that mental health oscillates and it fluctuates up and down. So you give somebody a questionnaire, they'll often say, ah, some days I'm like this. And that's quite difficult. I mean, you know, the whole... Yeah, it's never fixed. No, there's a whole psychometric science there, which is quite useful. But the categorization is useful in that it gives intervention. So you have GAD, okay, this is what I normally do. I mean, and that, that suits the 10-minute consultation at your G. Does it suit the person <clears throat> diagnosing better than the person receiving the diagnosis? Well, it, it probably suits a, a, an intervention system because we are, the, the whole system is built around mass intervention. So if we were to say every person needs a personalized intervention, that's quite difficult to mm-hmm. do. And, and, and without getting into conspiracy theories, there's no pill for that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical industry can't really deal with personalized medicine. Uh, so it hasn't given much research to that. Whereas it can deal with depression, anxiety. We can make a pill for that. And, and as a result, and it's, and, I mean, and they are real things, don't get me wrong. And, and people are categorized as such and medication works to a degree. But this absolute insistence on the labeling of things it might be losing some of its value. 
It does have its categorical value is good for intervention. But most people maybe don't fit into categories mm. or the categories aren't what we think they are. Or how they perceive the category exacerbates the issue. It certainly does. And it, and it, and it, it becomes a label and that then begins to define you. And as you say, you can get this kind of catastrophic thinking that this is the way I always am. Yeah. I have and a disorder. Yeah. So therefore I'm fucked like. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think this is where language becomes really important because you have things like post-traumatic stress disorder. And I, I very intentionally say post-traumatic stress because it's not a disorder, really. I mean, it's, it, it can become dysfunctional, but the response itself is not a disordered response. It's a perfectly natural response to what was a life-threatening um, circumstance in which you found yourself or event. And, and language can, can exacerbate or, or can soften things. So another good example is, is this concept of date rape. Mm-hmm. I mean, rape is rape, right? I mean, somebody's raped, they're, they're raped. The fact that it was preceded by a consensual dinner doesn't take away from the fact that it's rapes. But we, we say things like date rape and it sort of seems a bit softer. When you have uh, suicidality or weight gain or, or changes in your voice or headaches or nausea um, as a side effect to a medication, we sort of, it, it gets relegated or diminished as, as important. I mean, we're solving problem A and we're creating 10 other problems, but they're side effects. Mm-hmm. Oh, this drug has 10 effects. One of them you want. Nine of them you don't. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not really... I mean, if that's the best we can do, I mean, that's that's not really very useful. So the categorization is useful for intervention, but the side effects of that are actually... The knock-on effects of that can be quite detrimental and dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. However it can have massive explanatory power if you can say to somebody, you have depression. Then the light bulb can go off and you say, oh, okay, this is just a condition like any other. So I don't want to say the categorization is wrong. Yeah. It can have massive explanatory power and particularly if you're struggling to understand how you're interacting with your world and why you're not like other people or why you, you think you're not like other people. I mean, that's the whole social media thing going on there. But yeah, I mean, when people say I have generalized anxiety disorder, I, I think that's it's quite a loose term, isn't it? Yeah. So it's like syndromes. It's like IBS. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you have irritable bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. I mean, irritable bowel disease is going to be Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, yeah. and then it's the rest. We just yeah. make a syndrome out of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's more about um, not what something looks like structurally, but how it's functioning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That is that becomes more of like a syndrome or a disorder. Yeah. Or just a, a kind of a label to put on something that kind I of mean, goes you, out of whack sometimes. You you now have um, oppositional defiant disorder. What's that? Um, it, it's when kids are oppositional or defiant. Okay. Um, and I, I now it's a disorder. And uh, and people will come into the clinic and say, well, he's got diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder. And does that panic the parent? Then? Well, it, it depends on the parent. I mean, some people yeah. are saying, brilliant, now we understand why okay. he, he yeah. you know... He, I suppose, he, yeah, because for me, the, the categorization, the labeling would make me feel stuck. It's how I, how I respond to the category. The categorization. That's words. exactly it. It's how you respond to it. Yeah. For some people, there's great solace in that. Yeah. Because now they know their enemy. Right. So they're like, now I can deal with this. Yeah. Whereas other people say, oh, I've got this thing. Yeah. And that's, you know, many different reasons why people might respond in different ways to it. But yeah, I mean, certainly for us, 
a lot of people are really happy to have the diagnosis because they now now come to this intervention. Yeah. So you do get ADHD diagnosis. Yes, there are certainly things we can do, but it's, it's got the utility around the edges mm. begins to sort of lose its value. Um, and, and that's where there is this drive to scoop up every single thing we're experiencing into a, uh, into some categorization boxes. Yeah. And if we look at the, 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 the DSM, the most recent DSM, you know, this huge uh, diagnostic and statistical manual where essentially they're trying to categorize mental health uh, disorders. It was huge controversy. And, and like some of the biggest psychological societies in the world are rejecting it as, 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 as a useful entity at all. Okay. So there is a, there is a move now towards trying to recategorize or re-understand. And this is where I think neuroscience comes in. Because now you can categorize, for want of a better word, things as brain responses to, or brain templates, or, okay. or brain sort of fingerprints, brain prints. Okay. You know, this, is, this is the way your brain is working, and this is the intervention for you. I'm really interested in your enthusiasm for mindfulness, because I think when the wellness industry sort of blew up, it was seen as just kind of oh like just sit there and chill like fuck off like if I <laughs> if I could just breathe I would have done that by now and I would have been kind of a bit skeptical myself um, mm. but to have a neuroscientist talk about how important it is like is, is mindfulness one of your definite go-tos for everyone experiencing anxiety where that triage nurse is over overreacting mm. And what's happening in the brain? Can you explain mindfulness from from, from a neuroscientific yeah. perspective? Um, I, I have to f- first start off by saying I'm not a mindfulness expert. And yes. So you know, anybody who is a mindfulness expert, forgive me for what I'm about to say about it uh, or the errors I might make. And secondly, what I've learned about mindfulness has, has derived almost exclusively from conversations with, with Brezzi. Okay. And, uh, and he has really kindled my enthusiasm for it because I you know, saw it as that kind of, I was rolling my eyes every time I heard the word mindfulness. Um, and, and that is because it is trotted out, as Brezzy calls it, Mac mindfulness is trotted out for everything now. Just do this, do this thing on an app and away you go. And it's not really like that. It's work and it's practice. And he often describes it as, as uh, like the mental repetitions. It's, it's sit-ups for your brain, essentially. Mm. It, it's not recommended for everything. I mean, there are things, trauma, um, um, addictions for example mindfulness is contraindicated right, in those okay. instances it's going to make things worse because you're sitting with yeah I mean I don't know the mechanisms yeah. but I just know from my psychology colleagues here at Actualize that um, you know that they're two big no-go areas okay so that's quite dangerous actually um, but from the, the reason I'm enthusiastic about it is is we are not just subject to our limbic system right we have evolved heavy guns upstairs in the cortex this is the most beautifully intricate piece of hardware and software that's ever been created the fact that it's a bit slower than the limbic system means that it's often subject to the whims of the limbic system but mindfulness makes it active mindfulness wakes it up and mindfulness brings its heavy armor to bear on these problems this is ultimately what it's about doing. It's about saying, taking the power away from the limbic system, or at least the control away from the limbic system. And and I know this phrase has been borrowed exclusively almost, but it gives you back control. Yeah. And it, it decouples, as cognitive behavioral therapy has tried to do, the emotion from the response. 
it allows you to choose your conscious response. uncoupling yeah, like yeah, we did that's, that's right. <laughs> I'm very sorry to bring all that up but it, it is a real phenomenon and you can practice it and it requires practice and if you understand that your anxiety or your anger or whatever it is is being driven from millions of years of evolution you first of all stop blaming yourself yeah. You understand where it's coming from. You accept it. You accept it. You leave self-criticism at the door, which of course activates the limbic system and makes things worse. And that's the inner voice. And you say, right, I can choose my response. And, and now all you need to do is buy yourself that 100 or 200 milliseconds. That's all you need to do. And that's what mindfulness is helping you to do. Mm-hmm. So if I can give you an example, and I think it's very, very useful to look at anthropology in, in this context so if I'm driving, so cycling to work this morning, and, and as you know, the cycle lanes are not perfect. And, and I, I was cycling and a car sort of just pulled in kind of in front of me awkwardly in the cycle lane and they were turning left and I was going straight on. And, you know, you get angry. You're like, Fuck, you know. And, or if you're driving in traffic and a car pulls in a bit too close oh, in yeah. front of you or on the M50 or you're, you're on a motorway or whatever it is. Yeah. And you get this surge of anger. Yeah. And particularly when you're in a car or on a bike, I mean, what's the point? Like, you know, you, you, you say to yourself, but you get angry. And, and uh, people get angry in traffic all the time and freaking out and it's a huge problem. And you say to yourself, why? Afterwards, you feel bad about it, of course. It was pointless. Or somebody says to you, the passenger helpfully says, what are you getting so mad about? <laughs> and, and then you just want to punch them. And, but if you look at it from an anthropological perspective, even though you're not going to win, that, that's happened. It's an affront to you socially. You have just been challenged and beaten. Now, you're not going to win. You can't, you can't, you can't pass. I mean, you see people trying to do it, pass that other person out again, all this kind of ridiculous thing. And you're responding like this because socially, you could not be seen to, to take that lying down. Even if you weren't going to win, you had to fight back because now you're in a society and people were, were judging you Mates in particular are judging you on your capacity to fend for yourself, fend for potential children, all that kind of thing. So even if you're going to lose, you have to fight back. Now that person pulls in front of you, that's an anthropological hangover. We have to blow the horn, gesticulate and all that kind of thing, get angry. The heart rate starts going, all that kind of thing. What mindfulness can help you to do. So that's the limbic system. Remember now the limbic system is driving that behavior very non-consciously. What mindfulness does is buys you that couple of hundred milliseconds, strengthens that the big guns in the cortex, increases their capacity to downregulate the emotional limbic system, as it were. And in that moment, remember, it's not going to stop the limbic system response. Let's get away from that concept of trying to stop the feeling. That's not going to happen because it happens before consciousness. What you can do is control the response. That's the key. That's the key. It's when Homer Simpson stood on the nail when he was building the doghouse or wherever it was and the nail went up through his foot and he said, hmm, that's going to require a tetanus shot. That very sort of distant, dispassionate view on pain. Yeah. You can can feel the heart rate. You can feel the stress response. But mindfulness helps you to choose your response. Mm. It strengthens the prefrontal cortex's capacity to regulate the limbic system, giving you your cortex back and allowing conscious decision-making. Now, importantly, that doesn't mean not being angry. Yes. It doesn't mean not defending yourself. 
It doesn't mean being passive. It means choosing your response. So a day later or an hour later, you can look back and say, no, I was perfectly justified in getting angry. Yeah. You don't look back and uh, with your hand over your face saying, I shouldn't have gone. Really sorry about that. I just flew off the handle. That's a very different reaction mm. versus a response. And that for me, understanding the mechanisms behind mindfulness then make it much more palatable mm-hmm. when you understand what it's doing. Uh, but there are key caveats. One, it's not it's not a cure-all. No. And it needs practice, but it needs good supervised practice. And when you can develop it as a skill, you can bring it to everything. And you can bring it to the most mundane things in your day. And you can enjoy things that otherwise are mundane. You come off autopilot and you begin to sort of experience the world as it is, warts and all. Mm-hmm. And, but you're choosing your responses. And that's real power. And having maybe looked at brains after a couple of weeks or however long is the right amount of time to, to notice something in a brain... I, I've read different things that say it's like about mindfulness that like it can shrink the amygdala the size of it or it can can you see on an EEG of someone who practices mindfulness what like how their brain actually changes mm-hmm. you can see the connectivity change between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex wow. so the the, 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 the the motorway as it were gets wider wow. um, in the same way as post-traumatic stress yeah but it's the opposite effect it's it, it's the the regulatory capacity of the prefrontal cortex over the limbic system improves over time. And and that's very powerful. It gives you response uh, capacity. It gives you psychological flexibility, which is, is the holy grail, really. And, and and if I can just mention one thing about, mm. about mental health versus physical health, it's useful, and, and this is useful from an EEG perspective, uh, which is, relates to signal processing in general. If we look at mental health in terms of variability, we tend to look at physical health in terms of linearity. So I get sick, I get well, or I don't get well. But it tends to be linear, and once you stop linear recovery, you, you know, there's, there's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you get an infection, and that starts to improve, and then it disimproves again. You know, everybody panics mm-hmm. if you've got something's going wrong. Mental health, I think it's useful to look at it in terms of its, its, its range of variability and, and your control or, or your capacity to understand and, and control where you are on, on a variable scale. And what we tend to see with things, again, like ADHD or anxiety, is that the variability is quite high. And if we look at EEG signals, the inherent, which is just a squiggly line on a screen, like a radio wave or any other wave, what you see in the EEG and this is how we can distinguish trait from state, is high variability as well. So when we looked at your EEG, we looked at the, the neocortex, we looked at the limbic system, and, and remember we were looking at those numbers, the numbers are quite high, that's high variability. So what that means is, on a day-to-day basis, you, there is a bigger fluctuation in terms of your mood or experience of the world than maybe another person. Mm-hmm. And also what it means is that there's, there can be unpredictability. So you can have variable responses to the same thing. So we see this all the time with ADHD. Morning one, you know, you see, you know there's chaos and everybody's arguing and, and the kid's getting upset and the parents are getting upset or whatever it is. Kid comes downstairs and there's hell to pay over a tiny thing. Mm. The next morning the kid comes down and it's, and like a different person. 
and they send them upstairs and they brush their teeth they put on their shoes they have their everything they get the school bag ready and they're out the door and mum and dad are looking at each other saying what did we do this morning they try and replicate that tomorrow and all hell breaks loose the same with anxiety sometimes you're in this emergency and you just have this state of calm and the next thing somebody doesn't text you back for 10 minutes and it's almost panic stations and that can be really difficult to reconcile with our linear view of the world. Yeah, but you can't put your finger on it. Yeah. But think about it as variability. Yeah. We are being sold this concept of linearity all the time. That things should be straightforward. You know, do this, this will happen. Look at elections, look at Brexit, look at all of these things. Mm-hmm. Look at the way uh, politicians are interviewed. It's all looking for linearity. Are you going to say definitely that this is never going to happen? You're never going to do this. You're always going to do this. You said something different 20 years ago. There's no space for non-linearity. There's no space for a politician, for example, saying, yeah, I did think that 20 years ago. And then I read about it. And I had 20 years experience. I grew up. And now I think this different thing. No good. The mark of the successful politician now seems to be, I never changed my mind on anything. Yeah. Which, if, as, a, as any functioning adult will tell you, it doesn't really work. I mean, you, you, you berate six-year-olds for being like that. Yeah. But the same with... If we allow variability in, and we think about our mental health in terms of variability, not like physical health, then all of a sudden you can start to appreciate that you can have a bad day, mm-hmm. but it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Or you responded very poorly to this particular situation. Doesn't mean you'll respond the same way. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And where, well, what, what, what's important then is self-compassion. Mm. I, I love everything I've read about self-compassion um, about uh, we think that being self-critical is going to be more motivating and actually it just triggers cortisol in the fight or flight system mm. and actually self-compassion kind of calms things down but people think again oh like yeah just mm. be, tell yourself give yourself a hug or whatever but yeah. actually scientifically from a neuroscientific mm-hmm. perspective you can't argue with it. No not at all yeah. and I mean compassion comes from the Latin root to suffer with mm. and we're very good at suffering with other people. Yeah. We're, we're fantastic at that. We're not good at suffering with ourselves and giving ourselves a break. Yeah. So self-compassion is very, very difficult. And that's, a, that's partly a cultural thing. Yeah. It's a stiff upper lip. It's just get on get with on it. Get on with it. You know? Yeah, especially in Ireland. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, that's, that's quite prevalent. Self-compassion, if self-compassion was a tablet, everyone would take it every morning because of the effects it has. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insanely powerful. So for someone listening who is experiencing anxiety to the point that it's damaging their day-to-day experience what i'm getting from this is accepting the variability of mental health not rolling your eyes at self-compassion understanding how mindfulness can actually have a powerful effect on the down regulation of those fear responses Mm -hmm. and accepting that the response will happen but how you act on it or how you behave is where you have the power. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you'd like to say or think, think people should know about anxiety that would maybe reassure them a little bit? It's perfectly natural. Yeah. We, we have been selected through natural selection to be anxious. That's the first thing. Your anxious ancestor was the one who survived, not the one who was not worried because he was eaten by a I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's very true. Oh yeah, it's so true. And secondly... We have an old brain for a new world. We're not built for this. We're not. That's it. We're not built for all the chocolate. We accept that. We are not built for the environment we're in. Mm. 
we're not built. I mean, people of my age will remember the teacher saying, you're not going to have a calculator in your pocket when you grow up. Turns out we have. We didn't predict that this was going to happen. So first of all, there is so much threat now in the world, social threat in particular. Mm, an emotional threat, threat and to your sense of self-worth. or I mean, everybody's one tweet away from ruination. Mm. And, but we're reacting to those social and emotional threats as if we were wood or physical threat. Absolutely. Like our body still responds it in the same way. It doesn't differentiate. And they're everywhere. And that's 24 hours a day. There was a time you could escape the saber-toothed tiger. You can't. He comes to bed with you at night time and sits on your chest staring down mm. at you. That's the truth. And what I would also say about the environment is it, it might have accidentally sort of become a bit more stressful, but it is now quite deliberately designed by people like me, neuroscientists and psychologists, to make you uncomfortable, to make you feel threatened. Because what are you going to do? It You're going to look for a way out. You're going to buy your way out. You're going to vote your way out of fear. They say marketing and all of these. It's another, it's, I'm sure it's another series of podcasts, but... If you can instill discomfort. It's a currency. Yeah. You say, well, look, I mean, look at how good David Beckham looks. And he uses this thing on his rolls it under his eyes. And look, he looks as fresh as a daisy. Hang on a second. He's a former professional athlete. And he has access to incredible nutrition, incredible everything. No, never mind all that complexity. Look how good looking he is. And he uses this eye thing. You look a bit shit. <laughs> And, and it's not conscious either, by the way. Yeah. I mean, this is, this, it's just, this is just, a, you know, yeah. over time, this, it's an indolent thing that happens. Except that the world we live in promotes anxiety. Except mm. that you are conditioned for it through millions and millions of, and iterations of, of genetics. So it's, a, it's, it's almost a natural state of being. But also you have evolved a very strong neocortex which you can activate through many, many different interventions, which is a hundred times equipped to deal with anything your limbic system can throw at you. Anna. Thank you so much, Dr. Michael Kane. You don't say Kane, it's Kane. No, we say Kane, yeah, Kane. right. This has been so informative and I've learned so much. There's so many things you're saying that I'm like, oh, that'd be an excellent pull-out quote. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're giving me loads of headlines. Um, thank you so much for introducing my listeners to neuroscience in a very digestible way um, and if anyone wants to come in as a, as a client are you is that possible are yeah you? they just go to our website okay actualize.ie okay yeah, and they prepare to get some goo in their hair that's right it's a gooey process don't come in with a blow dry but it's well worth it <laughs> thank you so much you're welcome thanks a million Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access the full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.